Welcome to Learn or Be Learned. We all have a story, we're all the hero of our own story, and whether your story is worth reading when it ends is up to you. I'm your host, Shiva Danishaker, and let's get into episode three. So I saw a couple of your podcasts. I think the one that you just did was really cool. I think you should maybe explain a little bit how the experience was and who you actually got to meet. Oh, yeah. Well, that's uh, still really fresh in my mind since Mm -hmm. it was only a couple of days ago, but it was great to be on the Joe Rogan show and have the Joe Rogan experience. It was a fantastic opportunity. You know, I don't know what else I can say. Um, It was great to meet him and... The, the point of it all, I, I guess, was just to have a conversation with him. And that felt like, you know, we got into it and, you know, went in all kinds of different directions. And that was super enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You ever ask him about what the what the Buddha statue is all about in the corner? There were a lot of uh, little knickknacks and all kinds of things in there that, I, again, looking back, there's so much I uh, think I could have or should have done. But I... Uh, uh, there were a number of things I was curious about in that room that I didn't uh, I didn't ask about. Okay, well, yeah, you uh, it was it was really cool. I actually watched the whole thing. It was very interesting, and I actually wanted to mention something you mentioned in the podcast at the very beginning. You talked about how your interest is not in the conventional containers of religion, but more so the cultural intersects of what you consider religion to be. And I thought that was really interesting. I was wondering if you could kind of explain a little bit about what are the other aspects of religion you consider? Well, yeah, I mean, this is um, why I find the study of religion so exciting um, is because it's so much more than just, and the containers might not be a fair way to describe the world's religions, but you know what I'm saying, that there's more to being religious than, you know, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim and so on. So that's what I'm trying to get to and, and explore is how people are religious in other ways and in other kind of in, in other in other terms, right? Um, but you know, again, because that's what people keep asking about is sort of well, what's your definition of religion? And uh, not it's, I don't want to get all nerdy, uh, but it's you know it's a non-substantive definition. You know, I don't care about what people think in terms of their experience and what it all means and some kind of, uh, you know, kind of pure essence to it all, whether it's God, the spirit, whatever. I'm much more interested in in, in sort of, uh, well, again, it's, it's sort of simplistic, but how religions function mm-hmm. and um, how they, uh, how, how religious ideas and activities are expressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether we're talking about, you know, what someone's doing in a church, you know, what someone might be doing at a sports event. Would you consider healthcare to be a form of this embodiment of religion with your working definition you know yeah health is a very kind of um critical aspect of uh, of religious life mm-hmm. you know and i think yeah absolutely and, and that when you study religion means uh, at least for me um that uh, you know that that entails you know what is health there's yeah. another term that's difficult to really define and can be defined in different ways mm-hmm. in different cultures You know, I think certainly the concern about some kind of really ultimate organic combination of physical, mental, emotional, I would say something spiritual, is all kind of caught up in notions of health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting, especially considering in Western healthcare and medicine, we see the glorification of the white coat, right? I'd say that has some embodiment of what we see in some religious aspects as well. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but I've written about that. I've 
tried to write about what gribed in, in the title of this article is called The Cult of Doctors. Mm -hmm. And so I do want to look at the white coat and all it symbolizes. And but particularly in, in what I'm look at in that article is really um, the rise of, of biomedicine as as the primary cultural authority in mm -hmm. modern society in the early 20th century. So the doctor and the figure of the doctor, especially, you know, from whatever, 1900s through to the 1960s, is, I think, a really symbolically charged and, and has traces of religious meanings and connections in some way. Okay, yeah. So you say, like, symbolically charged. Would you say that the reason we would glorify the aspect of doctors would be because essentially they're kind of like healers or the opposite of death? Because you talk a lot about death, right? So is that kind of like the other side of the coin on that? Or uh, Well, again, especially when we're talking about a particular kind of doctor, like the, the mm -hmm. medical doctor that we, we yeah. all um, know. Uh, and, uh, and often, you know, you know, put our trust in, you know, our most sacred trust in, mm -hmm. because of, you know, as you say, what we assume are to are, are to be their their healing powers, yes, and things that and, and something that matters uh, ultimately, you know, mm -hmm. for us, and that's the state of our body, you know, and how are we doing, and so doctors take care of that, but but absolutely. Especially in the in the again early twentieth century, when medical doctors really begin to become seen as, as I said, sort of cultural authorities, but also you know embodiments of the promise of science—not just healers, but people who can perform miracles. Mm -hmm. You know, you just can find all of this language and imagery around the um, the doctor in the white coat. Obviously, at this time too, especially usually a white male, in in all kinds of interesting cultural data. From from again this uh, nineteen hundred early you know nineteen hundreds through to the nineteen sixties when a lot of that begins to change. Yeah, I think that the idea that the healer and as a doctor is kind of interesting. But do you think this essence of spirituality is kind of eroding, or I don't know, it's being like kind of how separation of church and state. The idea of healing is that separating from religion as we move on, especially in the Western world. Um, um, yeah, well, speaking in generalities, I, I would say separation definitely occurred over the course of the 20th century mm -hmm. as, you know, science became a primary paradigm in our lives in so many ways. And again, the perception at the time was science was uh, replacing religion or, you know, really being the primary arbiter of certain kinds of, of truth. So, you know that's um, that's questionable, and there are all kinds of interesting intersections between religion and science. But again, that was the general perception. Um, but I think that's completely changed. So now we're seeing many more um, uh, initiatives and all kinds of evidence, of, to a degree, I suppose, uh, of an attempt to return and bring those two back together, sort of mm -hmm. spirituality and healing in, in some form or other. Yeah, no, for sure. You mentioned your white coat article. I actually had a different article from I think was it Huffington Post, right? You you have a few articles there. I think there are some from a little while. Yeah, back. I found one that uh, it's, the title was "Learning to Die." I found, yes, I actually pulled up a quote. I, I kind of want to read it. You said, "Let's not forget that death is indeed the great equalizer, no matter who you are or your status in life." Forget the art of the deal when death comes for you. No negotiation, no threats. No manipulations. It's the price we pay for life. And especially that last sentence, 
caught me very much so. Yeah, dude, yeah, I don't know. What can I say? I, I mean, this is um fuck up lesson or perspective to acquire and to achieve and, mm-hmm. and um, in some ways and in other ways there are many people who are uh, you know very reflective on death and understand that this is, this is an inevitability that, um, that somehow we all have to struggle with and figure out i think what really caught me was like how you said this is the price we pay for life right so es- essentially when you think of like oh immortality that the idea seems cool in the moment, but when you really think about it, life like continuously would mean nothing without the other side being death giving it its meaning. And I think that's what's so powerful about what you study in death. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again. I mean, I think um, you're right on in, in, in how you're taking that. But it's certainly something that... Um, you know, many others have, have said in some ways, you know, that it's just um, life requires death. Mm-hmm. And so the two are intimately connected in, you know, cellular level all the way, you know, to a much broader macroscopic level in some ways. This is how it is. So, you know, how do we integrate that into our lives? And that's, I guess, part of what I've kind of been doing. Now, obviously within death, there's there's a lot of different types of areas you could go right you could uh, sacrifices homicides um, i guess the segue into this i was wondering what if you considered religion to be a cult or a form of such oh yeah like a death cult mm-hmm. yeah definitely religion is all about death i mean this is what uh, gives life to religion too. what does it mean to die is there an afterlife you know how do we live with the dead you know, this is the, the, you know, you could just go through and, and sort of, you know, easily uh, pick out different ways in which uh, religions are, are clearly by necessity focused on death. Mm-hmm. And I guess the way, the reason I segued into that was I, I wanted to especially talk about, you know, the Jonestown massacre, about how they willingly or and some not so willingly or over like 900 people died. I just think that's very interesting how you can persuade some to sacrifice themselves and and obviously this isn't the first time it goes back to way before even the major religions i was just wondering like what what sure. well motivate- i mean that kind of you know i don't know if you call it mass sacrifice and you know we have to be careful in terms of the details of that and mm-hmm. um there are certainly all kinds of um kind of historical and cultural specificities in that case that are um, you know, both unique to the time, but also, you know, as you're saying, you can find other kinds of um, examples, mm-hmm. like, you know, of people um, who seem to be willingly going to their death, whether it's to follow a particular leader in some way, or, you, you know, you could look at war as another example. Mm-hmm. People who were um, fired up and inspired to go to battle where death is obviously a, a possibility, and a, a different kind of reality. Uh, so, you know, that seems pretty, uh, you know, again, pretty unique, but also there are interesting ways it connects with other other kinds of phenomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, the other day I was uh, taking a walk through, I, I'm in Dallas, I was taking a walk through downtown Dallas, and uh, right next to the mall, this really nice, beautiful mall, there was this uh, graveyard. And I, would, I don't know, maybe that's just me, but I always find graveyards a little eerie. Um, I know that's also a personal opinion because it can also be very um, comforting for those who have lost in that particular graveyard. But is it, is it, 
I, I don't know what this dichotomy of also like you see in movies that graveyards are sometimes depicted as um more like in, in horror movies or something right so oh, i'm just curious like that dichotomy exists so easily yeah. it's also so you know sometimes ignored i don't know that's kind right. of yeah and and there too with a, it's very much um uh tied to certain kinds of cultural and historical circumstances where we think in terms of, of that sort of dichotomy issue mm-hmm. but um uh, yeah, obviously a universal question that all human cultures and individuals in the space is you know what what do we do with the corpse mm-hmm. you know and that gets answered in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. the cemetery as we see it today has again this sort of um, specific history in western culture especially and then in american history as well where the cemetery is first really primarily associated with the, the church or some kind of religious institution mm-hmm. um, but very soon breaks apart and becomes a separate entity mm-hmm. um, that, that again uh, there too is a question of where do we put the cemetery when it was uh, first associated with the church it was often um, in the very center of town you know in the 18th and early 19th centuries yeah um, but as you have more urban populations um, growing urban populations uh, you see a concern around public health and making sure actually you don't want to have the dead in with the living. You want to put them out in the margins, you know, of, of, of these urban areas and mm-hmm. somehow not far away, but not so far away that you, as you were saying, you know, you can't go and visit your, your loved one. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the placement of where cemeteries are and then how, you know, just in terms of, um, you know, living patterns and, and how, sprawl of suburbs and mm-hmm. people moving out to what were once the margins um you see this interesting mix of where mm-hmm. different cemeteries might show up along the social landscape i saw this cool thing where you would actually cremate the body and put it in soil and then plant a tree so it's almost like it's almost like a spiritual instead of a grave site it's like you go visit the tree every year or kind of um, show your condolences and your mourning through that, which I thought was a very beautiful way to kind of show the cycle of life. Yeah, it's fascinating. Very unique for sure. Well, it's fascinating just how um, the ways in which we now dispose of the dead is uh, really all over the place and Mm -hmm. and a variety of ways in which people choose to um, take care of their dead is just kind of... uh, consumer landscape that we haven't really ever seen before and what's you know i find particularly interesting even though you know everything has changed since the pandemic and thinking about the dead and our relationships with the dead but before the pandemic you you know you really kind of i mean i i observe a diminishing interest in the body as a central presence in sort of main funerary rites and ceremonies um, in taking care of and disposing of the dead. You know, that's, I think, a pretty uh, significant shift that is worth studying and thinking about, you know, is why is the body less and less important when we help, you know, in this final passage of life to death and making sure we take care of the body in ways that are socially appropriate, but also appropriate for the individual who's died. 
Do you think movies and video games kind of have also desensitized the sense of importance in, in mourning or I guess an individual's death that isn't really exactly related to you? Well, I don't know if it's desensitized. Uh, you mean in terms of you, you? Just death in general. Like I feel like when we think about a death, especially like someone like a celebrity, let's say like Kobe Bryant, that death was huge. It took a huge impact on people. But then you think of someone who no one really is not very famous or you see someone in a movie die, kind of just don't have that same sympathy. And also in movies, it's not real, but also this feeling of, I don't know, we're emotional creatures and it just doesn't seem to provoke as big of an emotion as maybe some other events in a movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I see, I can see what you're saying. I think that's, that's right. I don't know if you're in the death and dying class next semester, but we're going to cover a lot of that. A lot of that. I actually took a, one a couple couple years back. Um, already took a death and dying course, but it was super cool. Oh right, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, it was it was very interesting class, kind of tying in other religious aspects of where, where they see how to mourn and stuff. Right. Uh, well, I, to get to your question, though, I mean, I think, um, you know, on the one hand, popular culture, you could say desensitizes us. It's a false reality or something. It's just entertainment. But on the other hand, I find it to be very um, powerful mm -hmm. in how it shapes our attitudes, as you were, you were saying about, you know, death, how we think about death, how we might experience death, how we think we're supposed to experience death. Mm -hmm. So it's I find it very um, compelling and influential. In, mm -hmm. in American society today, um, but, you know the question of celebrities is one is fascinating, and certainly the death of celebrities brings out all kinds of what I would call religious ritual, you know, religious activ activity that isn't tied to any necessarily religious tradition or church, but has to do more with again this sort of those intersections of religion, spirituality, and cultural life. And so, yeah, we feel a certain kind of intimacy and have certain kinds of investments in celebrities mm -hmm. that, you know, we could go on, on and on about. But that, that, that kind of special bond, even though it may be artificial, since, you know, most of us didn't know Kobe Bryant or whatever, mm -hmm. um, still runs deep when yeah. someone especially dies, uh, you know, young. Yeah. It's a different reaction than, you know, when someone who's in their, um, 80s or 90s die, dies and, and, and has had a full life. And, and again, who, who's been in the public eye too. Especially when uh, a lot of people relate to someone as a father figure, as a, you know, ex-athlete, all sorts of ways to connect with someone who's not very old. It's kind of shocking to see someone have their life together and just abruptly taken away. Is, I guess yeah. that's what shook the American culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for many people, it'll be a marker, you know, it's going to be impressed on memory so that it'll be, well, I remember where I was. When that yeah. happened. And it'll be, I mean, that's, you know, increasingly um, how, um, how we live our lives is in relation to these <laughs> markers of death. Yeah. I got to write that down. But, uh, no, you know what I'm saying, you know, that's, and then how do we navigate our, ourselves, uh, our way through that, whether it's our grandfather or grandmother or our pet or some, you know, kind of celebrity that we are particularly fond of or. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I agree that markers of death thing is crucial, right? There's um, 
you know, the genocide of Hitler, there was 9-11. These things are huge events in our history that can never be forgotten. You know, Pearl Harbor, there's, they're just like stuck in history and they're definitely markers for sure. Well, right. No, and that's great. That's at the uh, more collective level. Mm. On the personal level, existential level, uh-huh. is how we individually are thinking through these things mm-hmm. um, and living with um, the presence of death. But as you're saying, too, as a society, certainly these um, may be the most important um, collective markers of memory and, and especially and not just memory, but our, our sense of identity as mm-hmm. a society um, is how we respond to those big, massive kind of mass death events. Yeah. I actually, um, I have your book right here, the one you recently wrote, the Don't Think Oh, God, you got a bunch of stuff up there. Yeah, it was, uh, I actually read it. It was the entire thing. It was, a. Uh, it was really cool. My, I think my favorite chapter. You read it? I did read it. I did read it. Wow. My favorite chapter was definitely the one on Walt Disney. Just because it, just because I think him, it's very interesting as someone who's very inspirational to children to, you know, kind of illustrate death at such an early age. Yeah, I think. I think didn't his mother pass away at like an early age or something? So most of his movies don't have a mother figure in them or a mother who dies or something. Uh, I think that's like really interesting how, because when we think of Disney movies, they're so glorified as like this like happy ending, perfect movies. Yet there is also death in them, which is right, very cool. Or the or the fear of death, or you know, death, uh, you know, in some more symbolic sense. So it's. It's uh, what I've tried to show there is that it's pretty um, pervasive in those films. And, mm-hmm. um, I, that was one, I, you know, uh, I mean, that was just a fun article to write, and I, I had, it was very fulfilling. I don't know, you know, if I should say that, but in any case, I, I really dug digging into it, mm-hmm. and I, you know, basically tried, I think, to both look at death in the life of Disney and look at these themes of death you know, in the films themselves, and then also how people responded to to them. And, you know, it was pretty overwhelming. And again, the point was to not, you know, not contest, but to sort of uh, um, throw out for consideration uh, the notion that maybe America isn't as uh, much of a a culture that denies death Mm -hmm. as people say it is. You know, it's a little more um, complex than just... um, you know, America is a death-denying culture. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, speaking of death and Walt Disney, do you, have you heard those conspiracy theories that he's like cryoed somewhere in, in Disneyland or something? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a mythology. This is American, you know, mythology around yeah. uh, what I would call a kind of uh, an icon, you know, someone who is uh, more than an icon. Another colleague of mine uh, written about uh, cultural saints. These are people mm-hmm. who have sacred status mm-hmm. in, our, in our lives in a, in a big way. Not not just they're a celebrity, but this is someone who really has shaped, you know, American culture in ways maybe more profound than just about anyone else in the 20th mm-hmm. century. And and there is a, a, a I'm, I'm not recalling the names of the authors, but there's a as I remember it a, a book called the American Mono Myth. Mm-hmm. tries to look at some of these cultural saints and religious aspects of culture and and, and the argument uh, or is made that the two most important figures in the 20th century in terms of sort of cultural life 
and, and particularly these ties with re kind of religious cultures are Walt Disney and um, Hugh Hefner. So, you know, sex and um, childhood, I don't know, <laughs> that's not something. Those are, you know, when you think about it, yeah. youth or something, you know, driving forces in, in, uh, in American life. Yeah, no, I, I, I came across, um, I don't know, that the theory of him being cryo a while back, and I thought that was just absolutely, I mean, it's, it's, I w I'm not going to discredit it. I'm not going to say, I'm not well, going to happens or didn't happen i just think that's a very interesting conspiracy theory just like many others out there well that's worth uh, then researching if you want to try to figure out but uh, for me this it's part of that mythology and especially around is he really dead you yeah know, you know back to that question uh, in terms of his ending mm -hmm. yeah actually uh, there was there was like i think part of it was they're talking about how the new frozen movie came out and they they're saying <laughs> did you did you read about that they, they no said, no but i can't wait yeah they said uh they said there was like oh they named it frozen because now when you look up disney frozen you're not going to find a ton of articles about him being cryoed it, it's <laughs> like um buried deep yeah. in that which i thought was just i don't know that's that's really interesting but i mean there's well you know uh again nothing surprises me um <laughs> who knows Mm -hmm. um, in terms of you know how how they were thinking about that movie and what to title it, mm -hmm. I haven't seen it, so no, neither have I. I <laughs> know. Okay, well, I guess to get in, into a little bit about you know, the class um, we're currently in, almost finished with uh, drugs and religion, right? Uh, I think particularly psychedelics and hallucinogens uh, is very interesting. Because, I mean, there's, I mean, pharmaceuticals, caffeine, these, like, um, other kind of drugs exist. But I think the one that's really intriguing is the one um, that had a lot of backlash from the government, a lot of high, like, uh, it, like hit a lot of information. And, but people are saying it unlocked their creativity. And a lot of very successful people used it, like Steve Jobs, uh, Jimi Hendrix. I thought John about LSD. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, LSD in particular. But what do you think? Do you think that can help someone? I mean, not endorsing it, but in saying for the people that did take it, do you think it really helped with their creativity? Or well, I take them for their word at least, and you know uh, the fact that a number of people, uh, you know, their lives intersect in some way with psychedelics mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me. And um, how people understand um, the impact of that experience in their lives. In, in, in the longer run, mm -hmm. uh, there too, it, it wouldn't surprise me that for many people, like psychedelics, LSD has brought some kind of um, degree of enhancement or some new perspective on, on the self and reality and so on. But you also see it for sure uh, in different artists and, and innovators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess inspiration's a weird thing. It comes to you at, which is actually what my, uh, the book I read on the podcast before this was all about was how like boredom, uh, unlocks your creativity and how inspiration can come to you at like sometimes your most boring or most relaxed states. So, I mean, it's, it's just interesting how the mind works and how to really unlock your personal creativity, which comes in many different forms, I'd say. Uh, absolutely. Not just through psychedelics <laughs> or drug induced. Yeah. 
uh, right. Uh, people find all kinds of ways to uh, get the creative juices flowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, that can come from a variety of different sources. And mm-hmm. Certainly from dreams or, you know, from just trying to discipline yourself or exercise or even just uh, sitting and um, being still. Yeah. No. So, so, yeah, I mean, that's... But we're in the class going to be really looking at the, uh, the Beatles and Chance the Rapper and trying to read a little bit more about uh, and think a little bit more about music and, and psychedelics and uh, here too, some of the religious sensibilities that are associated with, with that in, in musical expression, um, in terms of artist experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as you know, in terms of the audience, and and you know, we'll read a bit about raves and think about um, concerts and music festivals mm-hmm. as well. So, um, exactly about music is so enticing, especially for um, you know when you're under the influence, or I don't know. It just seems like there's also a lot of songs about drugs. Like, and there's songs made for when you're on drugs. I, I, so what is what exactly is it about music? Is it the rhythmic beat, um, the lyric? Yeah, I, people are are researching this, and there's a lot of interest, um, for sure, about what it is. Although, again, I'm not. I don't think there's necessarily there has to be a connection, but you do um, see all kinds of uh, settings and examples of how music and and the experience. And, and and not necessarily um, uh, the collective experience of being in a in a large crowd. Even this you know, connection with music and the experience might be just more individualized. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I think it. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are all kinds of um, neurochemical activities that are taking place that are being. Um, enhanced and and um activated and energized mm-hmm. through you know through both mechanisms you know the music and some kind of um more drug induced um uh mechanism for people so you know there's there's this sort of physiological harmony going on mm-hmm. um but then we also know the ways in which music can really have an effect on not, you know not just our consciousness but our emotional state mm-hmm. but our, our sense of um, um, where we are and where we came from you know so orientation in some sense uh, so uh, so I think the, the connections there make sense mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know as we've seen in the class is the, the number of songs that are dedicated mm-hmm. um to tripping in some way or, or pretty um, amazing mm-hmm. much more prevalent now than um 30 or 40 years ago but still you know we definitely have stuff from the 60s um that attest to this interest and connection as well yeah no for sure um i find that interesting that the act of you know we're social creatures but the act of coming together in let's say like a Bonnaroo or Burning Man, uh, I think it's just I think that's super cool. Uh, just the idea of everyone coming together and just 
like un- like unlocking your mind and just listening to music, having fun, socializing. Um, yeah. Have you ever ever been Have you ever been to Burning Man? Oh, I've been to some. No, I haven't been to Burning Man. No, I've been to some festivals though, for sure. I haven't been in. I know the vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Possibilities uh, and um, and the downers too. <laughs> so, <laughs> but as you say, it's it's it is it's a different kind of uh, social uh, network to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. You know, something we all miss terribly. With, yeah. With the, with the way the world is, and mm-hmm. we'll be able to get back to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, this is part of the draw for people is um, the music, the sense of being free um, and sort of disconnected from your familiar or traditional surroundings, and 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 there too, your it's not just your mind that's free, but really your body. Mm-hmm. And sort of who you are, where you place yourself, and what you do with your body um, is in a, in a sort of different order uh, when when you're in a festival setting than when mm-hmm. you're you know, doing the normal. No, for sure. So, so I wanted to ask, um, what are what are some myths you've noticed in either drugs in religion in particular or death in in religion? Um, what are some preconceived notions or myths that people have that aren't exactly the way it seems? Um, some we talked about in class on the sacred drugs class had to do with addiction and the ways in which, um, I don't know if I'd use the word uh, myth, it was like propaganda, you know, that certain, um, uh, certain kinds of um, uh, stories can get blown up into forms of propaganda that um, can shape people's attitudes mm-hmm. about the dangers of drugs or, um, you know, some of the sort of pitfalls uh, that that might um, appear when someone is using drugs and uh, you know, all kinds of ways in which drugs are seen and presented as um, being a moral threat in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the literature, of course, is now really running a counter narrative there and trying to show in terms of um, science and scientific studies that, in fact, it's some, a smaller percentage of people who are getting addicted and, and the, the kinds of drugs that people get addicted to. Um, are in fact quite varied and there are all kinds of different specific um, uh, sets of, of realities that are that are tied to um, how people consume heroin as opposed to psilocybin or something mm-hmm. um, so that you know that that's one that, both of these topics I think there's uh, um, all kinds of preconceived notions around death around drugs and, and um, uh, you know, around what we were talking about earlier, sort of health. I, mm-hmm. You know, I like to, I like to um, try to get students to, to question, as, as cliche as that is, those assumptions and, and, and ways um, of thinking about the world. You know, even, though, even if the questioning leads right back to where the students started, uh, I, I hope my classes are kind of more of a journey in some sense where you Yeah, for sure sort of allow your mind to get blown or to really be 
um, opened up in ways or to be allowed to think about topics mm-hmm. um, in, in ways and in a space that um, really is enriching, or, you know, or something. Or, you know, you know, I personally do things, yeah. I know, I, for sure. I personally saw it like a, as having all these distinctive ideas and, and after taking some of your, cl- uh, your class and, and readings, it's kind of started to kind of interconnect these ideas that I thought were so distinct. And um, I thought that was super cool. Well, yeah. And that, uh, if I, I mean, I know that experience. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're an undergr- as an undergraduate, mm-hmm. when there's a point in your education, at least, I mean, this happened to me too, where it's just like all of a sudden everything seems to be connecting in terms mm-hmm. of classes and, you know, I, that's a great experience to have. That's mm-hmm. a, and and, and it, it's um, interesting that it's a, so common. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, as you get older, it seems like a lot of the things in life aren't actually black and white, but, but mostly, as cliche it is, gray. Um, there's because it's a, it's a lot of opinions, a lot of uh, ideas, but not a lot of distinctive facts. Um, well, and every and yeah, certain things that are especially charged, and pe- people have uh, a great deal of, of um, um, investment, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of prioritizing certain views around religion, or death, or drugs, or sex, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. <laughs> Do you think weed is a gateway drug? No. No, you don't think so. Why is that? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I don't think there are studies that show that uh, that necessarily lead to other drug use. Mm-hmm. Um, gateway gateway is an interesting concept too. You know, I'm thinking about um, how we chart drug use and mm-hmm. think about um, you know the spread mm-hmm. um, and overconsumption. So, so it might be worth in, uh, exploring more, thinking about gateways and how they're understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I personally don't think it's a gateway drug, but I mean, as we can, especially in high school, um, several years ago, it was, it was, it seemed like some, a lot of people would think that it seemed like it was, it was charged as such. The idea around society was it is a gateway drug. We shouldn't legalize marijuana, um, and stuff like that. Right. That's, that's kind of one of the cases that they had. A lot of people were like, Oh, let's not legalize it. It's a gateway. Um, and, and I, and I just don't see it as such being a gateway drug because one, it's not an addictive substance. And I mean, there's a, like you said, not enough research. Yeah. yeah well, right. I mean, and I think that that language is, is, is certainly tied to um, the war on drugs. And they're again trying to shape public views you know, um, with other kinds of <clears throat> interests that are motivating. Um, how you know how those views are being shaped and why um, so much of that is tied into uh, as we talked about in class as well the history of racism and thinking about um, um, certain certain communities um, so it's uh, it's hard to uh, clear out all the BS and get to as you say some of the facts and realities that are there but it's a lost cause. I mean, legalization, decriminalization, we're, we're here. It's happening. Mm-hmm. It'll eventually um, um, be in all of the states. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's, that's really interesting, though, Like as like liquor and alcohol seems to be 
forever like acceptable except for the short period in the united states um and then there was huge backlash for it as opposed to you know lsd although there was backlash um and and marijuana it just doesn't seem as radical as, as alcohol and i don't understand why exactly that of all the substances that seems to have the strongest presence in, in a lot of different societies and cultures, yeah. religions. Alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that speaks to you know the sort of um, the widespread and and longstanding historical reliance you know on alcohol as a as a staple mm-hmm. um, in, in, in in human societies. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen the ways in which it's also brought into and incorporated in, into different religious traditions, whether we're talking about the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament and so on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's much more acceptable and, um, 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 sort of domestic drug mm-hmm. that we don't think of it, you know, as a, you know, we don't think of it as a drug. Yeah. And so that too is, as you know, part of what I'm interested in is, is, um, trying to um, confuse all of these categories and, and by using the word drug and getting mm-hmm. people to rethink how, how we classify things. Um, but then also for my book and what I'm hoping to, to really um, uh, research and work on is, is um, thinking about drugs across the spectrum of psychedelics all the way to alcohol and coffee and um prescription drugs as we've talked about too so um i know we've been talking a lot about psychedelics but the the interesting connections with religion um and tobacco are are really also it's a big one too it's fascinating Mm -hmm. no for sure yeah that's 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 really interesting especially to see that um they say like the human brain isn't fully developed till up to 25 give or take um but yet the legal age is 21 for drinking and, and the uh, ability to sign up for the army is 18. So yeah. that's well. some very interesting cultural like, markers or like, uh, well, that we've yeah. Mm-hmm. When, 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 when are you an adult? Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a, that you can find, um, how people mark, make that transition, mm-hmm. uh, and all, all, all different human cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, America, you know, it's, um, it's not as, uh, clear cut in many ways. There aren't the rituals as people have written about that really, um, can serve to not going to use the word mark again, <laughs> identify a moment of transition, um, when you are, you know, an adult. And so, yeah, that we have all these mixed messages about when you can drink or when you can vote or when you, you know, can drive and, and, yeah, it's a really um, um, very uh, uh, powerful um, time of, of transition and transformation in, in in our lives. It was a long time ago for me. I got other transitions to consider. Uh-huh. Uh, so I appreciate you being here and, and taking the time to have this. Oh time. man. Uh, do you have a you said you have a new book coming out right is it uh, uh, well i got this the one you mentioned the um, uh, don't think about death yeah that's the that's out just mm-hmm. just out so that's enough but i'm hoping yeah the book on religion and drugs is um in process and i'm hoping to get that really together next summer 
Okay, cool, cool. I appreciate it. And people can reach you on your website or other social media. Oh, everywhere. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm easy to find now. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it, Harry. Thank you for it. Yeah, sure. sure man. I, 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 this is fun and um, good luck with it all. What is up, guys? So it looks like you made it to the end of the episode. I just want to say thank you so much for watching. And this was episode three. Peace.